Well, this weekend, I had fried chicken for the first time in a while. And uh, what I discovered is that out there in the real world, uh, people just go buck wild with salt. Salt is like the main ingredient for things. And because uh, I had I had like four pieces of an eight piece box and man, so salty. They must brine it and then add salt to it and then put salt in the crust. And then they probably salt it once it comes out. Now, is this like homemade chicken? Like a friend made it? You make it? Or, no, no. This give is, me more this, details. This is this is Bush's chicken. Oh, I'm sure okay. you're familiar with them. And uh, it was it was it was funny because we, we were driving back from Colorado uh, Bend State Park, and uh, which is a nice park, just fine. And uh, someone we we uh, we'd met there mentioned that they were had fried chicken. So I was like, we should get some fried chicken on the way back. And so we stopped at a Bush's because no Popeyes was available in Lampasas, I think. <laughs> and and so we pull up to the drive up because we got the dog in the car, and I figure like let's just really do this up, and we'll just eat in the car. We shouldn't go into right. the restaurant, and because uh, okay. he got the dog. And someone walks up, and she's just like, "So what would you like?" And and I was taken aback. I was like, "Uh, I don't, I don't really know how this works, right? Like, because <laughs> I hadn't come up to the menu yet, so I don't know what they have." And so Kim afterwards, right. she she had right. since this is a, a a deep analysis podcast, she had some deep analysis. She was like, "Well, I guess they're not used to people not knowing what they like and want, so they must have frequent visitors who are just like, bam, eight piece box, green beans on the side, throw in some okra, done." And uh, but yeah, we had to get the whole tour of how the bushes works, and and there was wow, okay. there's all well, sorts yeah. of fun little stuff. Like you know, she was like, now the eight piece box has uh, you know bone in chicken, and I was like, well, what's the bone out chicken? Like I mean, and she you know she kind of like she was very good. She she was putting up with my BS. She was very good at big cheer. She was like, oh yeah, just regular fried chicken. But now you, you kind of went in there and said it was really salty. But yeah. in my experience, especially with chicken, like salty chicken, I mean, anytime chicken is good, in yeah. my opinion, it means that like someone put some salt in it. Because like when you make chicken yourself and you like leave out all the bad stuff, you're like, that's kind of bland, right? Yeah. So, yeah. so are you saying this was like too much salt to the point that it was bad or like, oh, wow, salt is good? I, I think I think I think it was maybe a third category and let's call it uh, post-funk too much salt, right? Which is like, okay. while I'm eating it, I'm like, looks it's like good, there's another yeah. there's another piece in that box. I'm gonna eat it, right? Uh, but but afterwards, I just I was just thinking, whoa, it's a good thing I got a 32 ounce of unsweet iced tea because I'm thirsty. Yeah. And and my yeah. whole point was that I had, uh, I actually didn't have some of that. Well, I did. I I had some leftover. Um, what do you call it? Sweet and sour, hot and sour soup, which is already uh-huh. salty. And I had yeah. I, I had made my wife a taco out of the leftover chicken, so I added some the little bits of chicken I had left to the the hot and sour soup. Plus, I put some fish sauce in it, and that was that was over the top. Oh, so, that's pretty good. Oh, okay. All all, right. all of this is to say, if I have to stop and get a drink of water, it's because I'm I'm full up to, on salt. <laughs> I'm, all right. I'm oversalted. Well, I don't want that. You know, I want to make sure you're fully hydrated for this topic yeah. of conversation. Yeah, and we're gonna need it. Because we, are. we picked a, uh, I think sixty-four. Let me let me ask Grace to tell me the exact number of pages here. But we got we got a sixty-seven page white paper here. Now, granted, I think let's say maybe seven pages of that is copyright table of contents. This is a sixty-page document. Now, this is Gartner's hype cycle for platform as a service. I think I think for both of us, we're particularly interested in this. 
since I, you know, we, we, you know, I work, I work at Pivotal, got the Pivotal Cloud Foundry. You scurry around on the Blue Mix stuff every now and then, right? That's right. I do. I yeah. am. I'm. Uh, I think I'm uh, PaaS certified to mm-hmm. at least discuss it. Oh sure, from the Central Certificate Authority of Pacification. <laughs> yeah, we we you know we all got those. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. While we were talking, they just added another pass. It's called uh, the C pass, the Certificate uh, Platform as a Service. <sighs> oh that's, man. That's, uh, you know that's exactly what. There's another one. You just you just don't know. By the time we get to this, this paper could be a hundred pages by the end yeah. of this podcast. Yeah. So as as you can tell, one, I don't like a lot of salt. Two. Uh, yeah, Brandon and I have a lot of, of, of personal experience with this category, a lot of thoughts. So there's a lot of angles of um, analysis, exegesizing for us to do. What I'm going to suggest, uh, we start off with what I think is on the top of each and you and I's minds. Is that, was did I just break out into some Jamaican there or something? <laughs> of, of you and I's mind, which is how many categories for pass do you need, Brandon? <laughs> Let's just tackle this straight up. <laughs> Well, I, you know, the first thing I knew was like, I, I didn't even know there were this many. Honestly, I had to go through. I just, I was dumbfounded about how many categories that I didn't know. But I think this is, some of this though is a little Conway's Law here, right? Like there's a Gardner analyst group, of course, and then there are lots of Gardner analysts. And then, of course, they want to produce a lot of research. So the first thing you kind of like get just the way they did this was they're incentivized to actually have lots of categories because that is what they want to talk about and that's how the analysts make money but then when they were putting this paper together it's clear to me that they just went to each of the analysts and were like okay i need uh, like a page and a half two pages on your pass right because they just like i mean like as you're reading through it it's just just you know two pager after two pager and it's like no one really read no analyst shall i say i'm sure some copywriter and god bless the copywriter read the whole thing but you know i don't think any of the analysts actually read the the whole thing in completion in my mind right because i was Mm. like this thing is just like so kind of overlapping and disjoint like there's so much like uh hard right turns in this that makes it a little bit hard to follow yeah um i don't know what what was your thinking i think i think i think a uh a hype cycle is just like it's just like a Thanksgiving dinner of content. You know? You got you got four types of pies. You got you got your you got your cranberry sauce from the can because you got that one person. Yeah, and then you got the yeah. fresh made cranberry sauce. You might even have the cranberry sauce that has no sugar. You gotta have you got some tempeh because you got that fucking vegan teenager. Right? <laughs> That's right. Yo. And then and then yeah. you got a turkey, you might have a ham, you're gonna have a roast. Now, right. when it comes and then to somebody a thanks- just brought spaghetti, like just on the side, someone's like, "Yeah, I just brought this oh, pasta. That's what the, we have in my house." There's right? the helpful like- relative. You've been like, "Please, you do not need to bring anything," and they're like, "I brought my green bean casserole with French fried onions on top." And uh, now, now, I think, I think metaphorically and also personally, I have no problem with that, right? Like, I, I like, I like it all, right? Like, now, it is hard to consume 67 pages of content. Uh, but yes, the, the, you know, having worked on documents like these, I've never actually worked on a hype cycle, uh, because I've never worked at Gartner. Uh, that would be fun to talk about, like the times I've interviewed at Gartner and Forrester and other places. Uh, that's that, I don't know if that's a white paper, but it's interesting. So, uh, I think a hype cycle probably, I would say the magic quadrant for this section of Gartner, right? I forget if we've gone over Gartner before. I'm going to do a little, uh, introductory analyst planning here. Uh, okay. So Gartner, 
They're the biggest IT analyst shop in the world. I tweeted a few uh, while back uh, comparing Gart- the last five years of Gartner and Forrester's finances, and it's kind of interesting to look like. The upshot is it's really good to be number one in the industry analyst business. Like <laughs> yeah. number two yes, is. is what you might call a distant number two. They're, they're, uh, you, got, you got George Colony and his people. They're fine. I went to their new headquarters several years back. Beautiful place. Lots of glass. You can play guitars in the lobby. They're living that life. But Gartner is just like pumping out cash. They're they're doing well. So, anyways, you got the magic quadrant, which I'm sure one day we'll look at a magic quadrant. You know, up and to the left or right or whatever other left, uh, and that's probably their number one money maker in this part of Gartner. The IT leaders, I think. Uh, there's another part of Gartner that came from the Burton Group, and they're called the Gartner Technology Professionals. And I would say if you're, well, actually this podcast is not really the case, but most people in IT, what the the GTP people do is what you would expect all the analysts to do. I think I've gone over this several times, but it's an important point is the GTP people are actually, they write 60 page documents about how to use stuff and their experiments, experiences with it and kind of road testing it, right? So they're kind of like the consumer reports of technology, whereas the IT leaders, as I think they're called, this part of Gartner They interact with each other. But this part of Gartner is a straight-up industry analyst, which means to some extent they care about using the technology and giving advice. But their primary concern, and this is my interpretation, is actually telling you about what's happening in the industry and covering what the vendors are doing. And that's why – and I'm sure this will come up in the hype cycle a little bit and also kind of explains the over-categorization – that's why when you look at stuff that the IT leaders does, and if you're looking for for advice, you're kind of like, and what what did I pay twenty five thousand dollars for, right? Because <laughs> they're not they're not it's not their job to go tell enterprise architects exactly what to do. It's their job to kind of give them a map of, of the territory. Right. If you if you want more pre- prescriptive stuff, you get the GTP folks, and that is a little bit more of, of what you're looking for. A so more. yeah. So to that point. Um, but we should pause. Let's just pause yeah, right there yeah. and say, like, because it's easy, like, and I am a fan of doing this. It's easy to kind of maybe fall into the the uh, cavern of cynicism around some of the analysts, at least Gardner, right? Now, in this case, I do think a role that they play is, and you kind of alluded to it, was you know trying to educate the industry just on like what's going on. So there is this kind of useful interchange between you know there's a lot of vendors building stuff and a mm-hmm. lot of consultants trying to help people build stuff. And then there's a lot of clients, customers, you know regular companies trying to build technology. So having someone try to arbitrate between like okay guys, let's call this this, let's call this that, you know what I mean versus yep. like everyone coming up, coming up with their own name and every set of functionality trying to overlay and you know whether it's like a car, you know, you know, like JD Powers or someone else, like trying to help people, if you will, understand what's going on, and then allow people to compete within those areas. Like I actually think that is a useful area that, and you know, in this case, Gardner's playing, but that is some real value, and that does help all of us. And yeah, my opinion. Yeah, and 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 then building on that to that end. So if we come back to our hype cycle here, right? So the I would argue that the job of the hype cycle is to tell you everything that's happening and represent it for whatever reason in this hype cycle thing as how real is this and how much should you care about it? Right. And so from that perspective, you know, if you were a IT leader, I guess that's why they're called that, or, you know, a high level manager or an enterprise architect or someone like it is useful to look at a hype cycle and be like in this space, 
what's going on, right? One, what are all the categories and all the things? And you get those, as you were saying, nice little two-pager descriptions of it. And the, and the, the format of the two-page thing is, uh, is actually really good, right? One, it's good to have a format <laughs> for a document like this. The utility of something like this is a huge part of it is driven by its regularity, uh, which is to say it comes out well, it's regularity and um, following a format. So you look at the format and I could be real professional and open it up and tell you this, but it's basically like, here's a description. Here's advice for people who might be considering it. Here's like at least one prediction about it. And then here are some references if you want to read more. And it's so, you know, if if you were just thrown, uh, hey, hey, man, you need to go figure out what we should do about Paz. You you could do a lot worse than start with this to just kind of read through it, right? And, and get the lay of the land. Now, also, to my point about them being industry analysts, right, um, it, it gives you a sense, again, of like, what are all the things happening in the industry in the various categories? And there's almost, I, looking at the icon, there's no obsolete before plateau. You, you, I, I, don't, <laughs> I haven't really seen those very much. I kind of vaguely remember seeing those over the years, but it kind of like tells you things that have, uh, that have cycled out. So, I mean, I think if you go into this thinking that like, I think a lot of people who uh, who uh, criticize this, I mean, you can always criticize on content, which I'm sure we'll do a little bit of, but who criticize it are just like, this This is not for you, right? Like, this, <laughs> this, <laughs> like, like if, you're, if you're someone who like gets all of your news on, on Twitter and you're really excited about whatever little AWS show is going on this week and uh, you're checking things out, like this is kind of like fun to stare at, but like it's not really going to help you out very much unless you're at a vendor. I mean, it's always helpful for right. a vendor. But. but I do think coming back, like one thing kind of for, just the form of the document that I do think a lot of times analysts fall down on this, right, is you can just the way they organize it, like the hype cycle itself. OK, that's good. And I know because this document six, seven pages, we're going to get a lot more detail. But, you know, back to your Thanksgiving uh, analogy story there. Right. Like when everyone shows up with lots of different dishes, something like one common thing that is done. Right. Is someone will be like, well, you know what we have? We have a dessert table. So yeah. anything that you think is a dessert, walk it over there. And then you may have like a vegetables table. Right. Or something or sides table. Right. And then you're like. Put it over there. And then, you know, same thing with the meats and proteins or whatever, right? And then you maybe have a vegetarian table. So what this document could do is <laughs> before launching into all the different – the life cycles and all the different paths is to kind of, you know, group them together, right? Because there's some stuff that's clearly related like I'm a developer and I'm going to try to build something. I may be interested in kind of this version of paths or like I'm a business owner trying to solve a really specific, well-known business problem, right? That may be in this category. You know, right? it's kind of like, yeah. the, again, walking up to the right table. And then now once I get to the table, like, yeah, there may be 50 desserts, but and that may still be confusing, but I've done a lot, right? I've narrowed the room down, right? I've narrowed the buffet down from like 400 things to 10. Yeah. And that's my first kind of, you know, I definitely think missed opportunity here. Before the hype cycle, I would have loved to see them kind of categorize these things in broad buckets to like give you know give the reader a place to go to kind of get anchored. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and you know, I, I remember seeing this as um, as cloud evolved, and you see th this same problem happens with the magic quadrant too. Well, in a lesser degree, which 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 I'll get to. But I remember from let's say the years of 2010 
when I had to find free Gartner stuff on online. And then when I was at Dell working on M&A, like, you know, we, we had Gartner access. But watching Cloud evolve in this kind of research from about 2010 to 2014, I'm kind of arbitrarily picking the end date. Like you would see there used to be like one magic quadrant and then it would split out into two and then the three and the four and so forth and so on, right? And I think, you know, looking at this, they could probably either eliminate some of the things in here or do that. <laughs> and and it is it is kind of confusing. It's kind of a confusing time in uh in Gartner land uh because application infrastructure and application development frameworks and paths and all this stuff out there is kind of running together, right? And we talk about this in the uh the mainline uh software defined talk thing, right? Like what is the difference between a pivotal cloud foundry a Kubernetes, a Docker Swarm, a Heptio, and an Istio, and also everything else, <laughs> right? And it's just like all this stuff, as all the vendors and the users, too, are trying to do the market, uh, what is my lean startup stuff, Mark, product market fit, trying to figure yeah. out what to do with this technology and what people will pay for it. It's just a big old gumbo of stuff, right? And so it would be nice if the analysts could kind of like uh, simplify it out. And I don't know. I mean, I'm kind of tired of being the apologist for all of this stuff. But uh, I don't know. Maybe maybe we're at the peak of inflated expectations of of gumboness, right? Like it's just gone all crazy. But you know, just just if you only look at the graphic, right? There's a few things in here that you're probably like, I kind of know what subtenancy is, but that's probably not important, right? Like, and mm-hmm. then and then there's also things like I think both serverless and functional paths. FPAS are on here. And if you go read the description, there's some text about how functional PaaS is a subcategory of serverless PaaS, whatever. Like, like there's a lot of things that could be consolidated. And then, and then even better, I mean, I guess they do have to have things like this, but I went and read the IaaS plus category. And it was basically like, it didn't say it this way, so this is my rewording, but it was basically like, IaaS plus is a duplicitous idea. And you're like, whoa. And uh, so maybe you just not have that in there <laughs> if, if it's right. a BS idea. Yeah. And, and then, and then I mean, I guess there's other things like auto scaling, right? So there's a lot of things in here that are features, right? Instead of full on products, so to speak, which, which, is, which is a little weird. And then, you know, I always have, I'm just kind of brain dumping here. I always have a lot of quibbles with, with uh, things like communication platform as a service and business process management, BPM, you know, PaaS and things like that. Like they, they seem just like things on their own. Um, right. And, and I think that's the, the missed opportunity, right? Right. You could have gone through, and this is where I think it would have been great to have that. Because even if you have all these categories, you could have something up front to start to kind of group things together and say, because I think one broad statement would get them out of like buy them a lot of wiggle room. It's like, guys, we've gone ahead and been more extensive here than we normally would be because these markets are very new and lots of things are changing. We expect consolidation, right, to occur in along these lines. Mm-hmm. But for the moment, you know, we're going to, you know, call all of this out. So when you have uh, IaaS, IaaS Plus, there were some, several other things around serverless that were just so, like, I mean, I had to go back and forth a couple of times to understand, like, what was different between the two sections, right? And it's like, so it's okay if you want to provide more information. And, but I think, you know, you need to lead the customer a little bit or the reader to be like, hey, this is like, we're over communicating here because we want you to know 
but probably in five years, you know, several of these categories are going to combine. And this is back to where, like, I would be critical. I don't think I, – I think we know a lot of Gardner analysts between us. I think they are generally smart people. I think any one of them, if they had read this document, like, front to back, they would have, you know, come up with the same type of uh, of uh, observation. Yeah, yeah. And, and and then also going back to your, your, your original point to talk about the structure. But, I mean, it is um... – to, to reword what you were saying, this is a very uh, uh, good example of Conway's law outside of IT, <laughs> right? So, <laughs> so as you're kind of alluding to, you've got all the – and you can see it because they – it's not like The Economist where they don't put bylines. Like they put the author names on each thing, right? And so – and I'll, I'll get to a good example, I think. Uh, I might be speaking a little bit out of my knowledge, but um, – all of the different sections, many of them are by different analysts, like Yafim and uh, Yafim and, and Paul Vincent, right? Like are the two the two main authors, right? So they they wrote a bunch of it and wrangled it together, and you know they were the editors and category people. But there are many other authors in it, right? So, like for example, uh, there's there's blockchain paths, whatever that is, <laughs> right? And uh, oh, I have the wrong paths in here. This is from. Uh, from 216 but whatever um and and so you look at the blockchain one and and like it's written by some other person i think right and that's because there's someone who covers blockchain and they, and they want to have that in there and and I, th- I think similarly like that's um so there's sort of like as you're saying you go to each of the analyst groups and you're like hey man uh you got you got a you got some content for me and they, they write up the part you want and, and you might like munge it around a little bit for them and, and things like that but in a very real way, you go to the different analyst groups, and you can see that reflected in here. I think that causes the uh, the category explosion. Now, as another example, um, hopefully I'm accurate in this instead of looking it up. But if if you look at so going back to serverless versus FPAS, right? If you look at serverless, uh, and that's actually written, I think, by Yafim and uh, and someone else. And then if you look at FPAS, that's written by by Ann Ann Thomas. And, uh, you know, again, these, these are like, if I remember, Anne works in the, um, uh, the GTP section and, and she kind of, she's kind of in both. She's been there long enough that she kind of works. She's a, you know, person about town person. Uh, but Ann Thomas wrote like the functional paths thing and then, uh, someone else wrote the serverless thing. And so you can see they're kind of like writing their own view of this thing instead of consolidating on it. Which which is a good uh, good uh, example of the Conway thing, and then you know there's like mobile backend services. I bet, oh no, I don't know that person. Someone, someone, another whole person wrote that and stuff like that. Whereas, if you had a, if you had a more, if this wasn't a buffet, right? You had a a a mythical man month surgeon in charge of a team, right? You would have a much more smoothed out, unified way of doing things and consolidated and. I don't know. I mean, having worked on stuff like this, yeah, that sure is nice. <laughs> but yeah, like, I mean, we all get it. At the end of the day, we all get like, hey, there's a deadline. A yeah. document needs to be written. People kind of cut and pasted and rewrote a couple pages they have. We all get that. But it's just like again, like you know, you just you want it to be better. But I think you know, this brings me even to like a broader question. I, I you know, I'd love to get your take on it, Coach. It's like, like I don't find myself like in general conversation around you know, the industry and talking to people that work in this, like, I don't use the, like, as a service moniker very much. Like, I just don't do that. Like, there's, you know, and I think that's, in 
one question I just had in general is like, has that sort of just outlived its usefulness? Like, for example, like I would just say, just take blockchain. I'd be like, yeah, like I know there are some people that are that have a blockchain service. Like I wouldn't even, you know what I mean? And that's sort of just kind of like what I mean by that is like, yeah, there's like some group of people that you know you can subscribe to them and they would provide you some type of blockchain services, uh-huh. uh, APIs, and things like that. Like, and, and I just I kind of feel like that, like that you can just shorthand this most of the time now. Like you don't need, like there is like, especially when you're talking about very, these, there's lots of these domain specific things. Like, like to me, they're just, it would be called, it would be like the equivalent of saying, you know, you know, I'm logging into the uh, social platform as a service, Facebook, you know what I mean? Like no one yeah. needs to say that you just say Facebook and you know what it means. Or you just say, um, and I, I feel like most of the industry, even, even people that are very new to it, would get that nomenclature much clearer than this as a service kind of like it almost feels like more like a uh, a word that or a phrase that could have died off maybe five years ago like we don't really need it anymore so yeah. I don't know with that being with now that I've exposed all, all my biases like like how are you talking it about it day to day how do I talk about PaaS day to day well not uh, so much PaaS because I do think there are three that will always live on there's yeah, PaaS. Yeah. IaaS and SaaS, right? That'll yes. always kind of be there. So those three are like words to themselves. You don't really need to like explain them, I think, anymore. But beyond that, like I would, you know, I don't use any others than that. I don't talk about like a blockchain as a service or air messaging as a service. You know what I mean? I just talk about like yeah, users. yeah, just just the as a service moniker. I mean, yeah, I I think I think I mean I struggle with this too, right? Because I I go to a lot of like DevOps days and other things, and I have to explain what Pivotal does, and um. We don't really officially like the term PaaS for all the reasons you were just saying, because it's it's both it's both a overly expansive, overly constrictive, and thus confusing category, <laughs> right? Um, and I mean, I generally just do what you just did. I'm just like uh, I try to figure out who the person is. I'm like they, you know, you could call this PaaS, but it's just like if you have custom written software, it's this middleware stuff and where you run it and things like that, and and like that's about as far as I go describing stuff that I care about, right? It's like you write software, you need the whole stack of things. I always make analogies. It's like an app server. It's like a PaaS. It's like this. Like, have you ever heard of Heroku? Like, it's the thing that runs all your middleware and runs your application uh, in production. And it runs on top of cloud stuff. Magic. Um, but yeah, when it comes to all these other things like like uh yeah blockchain paths or or like bpm paths i mean i'm pretty much just like i don't know why they call that paths right like that's just like (laughs) it's just like it's uh like if i don't know if concur does this but if concur was like all right how about we offer our expensing backend as a bunch of apis and people can just build stuff on top of that i mean would that be like expensing paths Right, like, like it's sort of like no, they just let you access their backend through APIs. Right, <laughs> right, like, right. like this is not a whole new category of things, and so, you know, and and some of the some of the integration stuff, like there's iPads in here, uh, you know, uh, which which is integration paths, and then there's also like AP management paths and and Data Hub iPads, and like those things are a little like, I don't know. I, I think there. I think honestly, like if I was in charge of this, I'd be like, "That's all overly categorical." Let's just say, like data integration, right? Like hosted data integration, and and like run with that. Like I, I don't think you need to be so 
so over the top about uh, each of these things. And and not to mention, I mean, you're kind of like beating the same horse here, but there's also the, a category of container management, right? Which is like, huh? Right? <laughs> like, like <laughs> and, 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 you know, you read through it and, and it does, I mean, this is all to the point of how it's hard to do this, this hype cycle in this category is, um, I mean, most every modern day PaaS, let's say contemporary PaaS, I don't like the moniker modern, it runs in containers and it uses containers but including myself and probably most pivotal people, like I would argue that it's not a pass if you're actually worried about container management, right? It's kind of like, it's kind of like, it's kind of like, I don't know an analogy. I was going to make a silly one, but it's just like, if, if you had to like build your own engine for a car every week, like, I don't think that's what people nowadays would really call a car, right? Like that would just be more of a hassle that you're dealing with. And so, you know, I, I think, you know, looking at the evolution of this, one thing that they note is that microservices used to be on here. And I think that's now on the application infrastructure or whatever. But like my prediction, I bet something like container management will get out of this category uh, pretty soon as well, just because like it doesn't really belong on there. Um, I don't know. But, I, you know, it's interesting. Their comment about microservices I thought was really telling because in a lot of ways, like they by doing that, they sort of almost like, you know, not even buried the lead, like lost the lead, right? Because mm. like what I think most, like if you put this aside for a second, what's interesting to people is like, hey, uh, we need to move to a more dynamic, flexible way to add new features and functions to our software to better serve our customers, make more money, whatever, right? Because that's, I think, typically how you want these conversations to start, right? Like somebody at a business either is trying to build that the current software is, well, that is going to then lead usually to a conversation just broadly around, hey, maybe we should adopt some of these ideas from some of these large companies like Twitter and Netflix, et cetera. And that'll eventually lead them to like read the 12 factor app and like mm-hmm. understand services. Right. Because that's like kind of the natural entry point into this kind of conversation. And then once you've done that, you then say, okay, Hey, we know that we understand the value of this, but now we have to kind of figure out what are we going to do? How are we actually going to you know, do this? And then that's where I think these conversations about containers and paths and serverless start to happen, right? As you kind of get into the details of like, this is how we think we should do it. This is what's going to work better for us. So, you know, by kicking out the microservices out of this report, it's like they kind of like kicked out like the interesting entry point for like at least a business minded person, right? Like the reason I'm going to read this is to figure out how I can build microservices and maybe which things in here can help me do it faster. Instead, they kind of just said like, "Oh, that's another app. That's like another report. It's like, you know, somewhere else." Yeah. Um, which really like really loses the audience. Yeah, yeah. Now that that one in particular is interesting and and I mean, I think I think you and I have probably have some biases here because we're probably like, well, the reason you spend a lot of money to buy this big old stack from Pivotal or IBM is cuz it all fits together and is interdependent to be awesome, right? And uh, or you could be like SoundCloud and go build your own microservices thing or something like that, which, you know, I got a white paper to send you about how that's a bad idea. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, right. But, but no, I, I, th- I think that one in particular is a little odd. Like, it, 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 I don't know. It, it's hard to imagine 
that for 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 the the end user audience of this right being large enterprises right like again like you know spotify is not going to go use this and determine what to do next right at all and facebook or google probably not either or netflix or whoever you want to cite right our hot dog friends uh but <laughs> but for the regular enterprise audience like they're probably it's hard to imagine how advising them that they should do microservices without a contemporary PaaS in place, right? Like maybe they could, but it would be like a strong piece of advice to be like, it's highly likely that you're going to want to like buy the thing that supports this. And in fact, you see that pop up here and there in this document where um, once DevOps comes back, they almost have, there's almost like this, uh, like from Mystery Science Theater 3000, this movie sign siren that goes off and they're like, whoop, whoop, whoop. You, watch out. If you're doing the DevOps, it requires a lot of cultural change and it's difficult. <laughs> and you can't just put like right. the technology in place. Like this comes up over and over again. And so there's almost like this, ex this thing where you, you want to be like, yeah, but don't you need PaaS if you're going to do microservices? And maybe I, I haven't gone and read the, uh, the, the GTP stuff, but they have some pieces on this that would, it would be interesting to compare and, uh, and contrast. But so before, before, maybe before we run out of time here, um, like I named one of the audiences, right? So, so I think, I think there's three primary audiences, one end users. And I, I, I mean, tell me what, what you think of this, but I think, I think they're the way they would use it. The easiest thing is to figure out, should I worry about something? And, um, I don't know to take off my vendor hat, right? If I have my vendor hat on, the answer is always like, if I'm selling it, you should worry about it. <laughs> right. And, and, uh, but if I take that hat off, I think it probably is a pretty safe way to like, look at a hype cycle. I mean, I trust them more or less and, and go by the things and be like, if something is in, is in the white or the blue category, which is to say less than two years or two to five years, it's probably something you should look into and see if it's applicable to you. Now, there's a lot of that in this hype cycle because, um, I mean, honestly, like two to five years is kind of a useless category. Like, what does that mean, right? Like, is that is that is that two years plus a day or is that five years? <laughs> like, like a lot can happen between between, uh, let's say, you know, two to five years from now. But that's why it's worth putting that in there. But, you know, those are things that are probably rated as legit. And if Gartner thinks that it's like in that, that category, then it's pretty conservative. And and that's that brings up another point to kind of be all, all over the place that if you go look at the methodology, it's easy to get tricked by the, uh, I don't know my geography terms, but by the, uh, the uh, what do you do when you're measuring the inside of something? Not the surface, but whatever. It's easy to get tripped by the shape of the cycle and think that a lot of stuff is happening over on the left side. But as they note, something is categorized as plateau of productivity when 20% of the market is using it, right? So, right? so if you think about that, that's like not mainstream. Or their definition of mainstream is that 80% of the people are not using it yet. Right. Yep. <laughs> so anyhow, so it is, I think it's a good, a good thing uh, for that. And then, and then the other two categories are basically us vendors. And then I also think like uh, that nebulous category of finance and M&A. But what, what do you think about the, uh, the enterprise users? How, how would you advise they use this? Well, I think the main thing I, I do think it is sort of like, one, you can use it to just, if you're like in a CIO or in the strategy office of a technology company in any way, like one, it's a good thing just to like quickly know like, hey, 
glance over it, understand what the buzzwords are, right? So, like, you know, just kind of keeping yourself current. So there's just the general education. The probably the more interesting way, and I think the way that people are going to generally do it, is they're going to come in with some type of issue that they want to, some kind of project they're getting ready to, to figure out. Like maybe, you know, and a lot of times it is buzzword centric. So if there's something that Gardner is trying to feed, it's like, well, you know, everyone's asking about blockchain. So let's like name something blockchain, right? So the first thing you're going to do is kind of come in and be like, okay, for this thing that I'm trying to do, let me kind of narrow down the two or three categories that I think are relevant. And, and really the table of contents, as well as the document, it's, it is you know obviously PDF, very searchable. You can quickly scan to just a section you need. So it's like, here are the two or three areas that we may want to consider in detail. And then you'd probably go, honestly, you'd probably go grab the magic quadrants for those areas and start to kind of like do your own internal kind of um, judgment of like, okay, we think we're going to build an app uh, we know it's going to be based on microservices. Like we think it's a pretty broad thing, so maybe we should start with this category of pass, right? And then you'd start to maybe invite some of the vendors in to kind of do presentations. Maybe you'd call, do an analyst call with them, and slowly start to narrow down what it is that you think you really need, right? And then oftentimes by putting up, and I think this applies to everything in life, like it's so much easier to get feedback if you just put up some straw man, right? So like if you're a company and you're like, hey, you would just maybe have a slide, be like, and as vendors or analysts came in and say like, hey, we're thinking about doing this and then start to see where people give you advice, tell you where you're wrong, tell you where you're right, um, and maybe start to introduce other solutions as they come up and you think they're mm. relevant. So. Yeah. So sort of like if you want to think of yourselves as like, you know, what you have here is a list of just raw ingredients, right? You then have to kind of figure out the meal you're trying to make. And even if you don't know, guess on the meal, right? And then as you start to show that to other people, they'll they'll give you clues as to like things you should add or remove or things that will make it a lot easier. Because the one thing about this that we do know, back to like your conversation about, you know, some companies want to buy everything off the shelf. Some companies want to build everything and most people are in between. But really, that's the ultimate personal choice or company choice. Like it's, it never, like whatever you're doing at one company usually doesn't work at the other. So like some companies should build more of this. Some companies Companies should probably not build any of this, right? And that's what – if there's anything that an end user is trying to use a paper for this is to figure that out. It's like where do we deploy our resources and where is our business so unique that it really does make sense for us to maybe build something that we could buy and vice yeah. versa? Where does it make sense for us to just buy the thing, not spend too much time on it and just live with the you know, the, the future benefits and limitations with the thing that we bought? Because frankly – we don't, you know, we don't need it. You know, we're not um, a high volume trading company that needs like, you know, less than one mil, you know, one one thousandth of a millisecond delay, right? Like any messaging service will work for us, right? So maybe that's okay for my business, but maybe you are the high value traders and you need to buy, you know, build that other thing. So again, back to like, you know, summarizing that it's like, hey, this is your menu of ingredients, gives you an idea. If you, but you got to bring an idea around the meal that you want, right? The the thing that you want to build, and if you don't bring that then that is the place where your project usually fails, right? Because mm -hmm. you just don't even know what you want and everyone's going to try to pile in there and, and, and in the end you end up with some, uh, like a Cote uh, leftover meal. And yeah. you're just like, hmm, not what go. I really wanted. Too much salt. Too much salt. Too yeah. much salt. No, that, 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 uh, you know, that reminds me of, of, of my, my uh, well, it's my own, my own personal favorite, you know, quip to the old consultant thing, right? Like a consultant just uh, looks at your watch and tells you what time it is. And it's like, well... If you could have fucking done that job yourself, you wouldn't have need to hire them, 
right? Like, <laughs> <laughs> so, yes. so, so sometimes yes. you do need some external input uh, to move things along. And I think, I think, I think that's a that's a good a good segue to the uh, the finance thing, right? And then we'll get back to vendors. Is um, you know, one of the things you highlighted there is using material like this defensively, right? So when you're in a, um, let's call it a leadership position, whether that's technical or managerial, but people come to you to get a decision about what to do next organizationally, right? And people are also coming to you and, and, and saying they want permission to go do something. Um, and so, yeah, you free, something like this is very useful for weeding out, like, that's just a bonkers idea or that's worth our time, Right. And you might be wrong, but if you want to support them, you can say like, oh, look, and it's at this part on the hype cycle, which aligns with our overall strategy, um, or um, or it's not. And so it's just like way out there. It's what, you know, Jeffrey Moore and other people would call a Horizon 3 thing, right? Like just have some summer interns work on it and we'll re revisit this next, <laughs> next year right. and see, how, right. see if it's worth anything. So similarly... And you can use it in the same way in sort of like M and A and finance sort of stuff, right? And if you if you imagine like who a lot of finance and strategy people are, um, they're not always experts in the fields that they're strategizing and financing over. So they also need a quick and easy way to kind of gut check if something makes sense, right? So if someone comes and is like, um, "Well, we'll keep picking on this one," like I need five million dollars to put a blockchain pad in place. Like first of all, the finance person to be like, "Okay." What does that mean? And <laughs> and and then and then maybe they can get one of their interns to go like go look up what this is, and they'll say like, "All right, intern, uh, by lunch, I want you to write me a position memo on this." And so they can go look up and be like, "Ah, oh, blockchain paths is like experimental and over here, and blah blah blah." And like, so it's a good thing defensively for that, um, or you know, for proving it. And, and another thing, when I was doing stuff, I would use it for is um, often you're asked or you should be asked to define the market window for an acquisition, right? And the theory behind, I think I mentioned this a long time ago and other things, but the theory behind this is that uh, as an acquiring company, uh, you want to you want to buy low and sell high, <laughs> right? Uh, so to speak. And you also want to buy something, you want to buy into a market, like let's say you wanted to buy into PaaS. You want to buy into a market right before all the money starts coming in, right? You want it to be validated but you want it to be um, uh, something that's right before all the cash has been out. Because you're basically going to buy something for like, you're going to buy, as they would say, an asset, a PaaS company for $2 billion. And you're going to want to make, you know, what's an IRR? You're going to want to make like 10 to 20% return on that over the course of 10 years or something. Otherwise, you should have just invested in Vanguard, right? Like, I mean, that's an absurd way of putting it. But you want to make sure that your return is good. So you want to say like, this asset has... Uh, if it's a 10x return, this asset has like $20 billion more cash that can be pumped out of it. So, you you know, you're figuring out this market window of like, when is the appropriate time to buy this such that you can extract the cash out of it? Also, there's another thing is that when the market window closes, there are no more assets to buy and there's no more cash to be made. And I remember doing a study about business intelligence and all of this is like just wet finger in the wind accuracy, right? It's all just modeling to actually help you get to a decision. None of it is like accurate <laughs> or real. It's just metaphors uh, gussied up in charts and PowerPoint. But, you know, in, in BI, I think there was a market window in like 2002 to 2005 or so where uh, business objects and the other ones whose name I can't remember, they were all independent. And then Oracle and 
and uh, Oracle and IBM and SAP came in and bought them all up. And then the market was done for, from an M&A standpoint, right? Like now you've got the three leaders, they own the assets. And if you want to enter that market, you're crazy, right? Um, and, and then just to finish the thought, like, because it's in- interesting to find this pattern and see if it plays out as other market windows close. Then what happened is when Tableau and Click wanted to enter that market, they had to figure out uh, the, uh, I think back then they called it the Blue Ocean. They had to figure out the Blue Ocean, the area that strategically no one was competing in. And the area no one was competing in in the, the late 2000s was, is this stuff actually usable? <laughs> and right. so so Tableau and Click came in and uh, and they made software that was highly usable and like was really pretty and was very user friendly, which was not the hallmark of what the uh, the old BI people did. And they created a whole new market. And then there was a whole new market window before uh, I think Click went both of them went public and Click went private at some point. But it's sort of like another weird market that you wouldn't really go compete with Tableau and Click because that's not an interesting market anymore. So, anyways. That is, unless you're a genius on your own, you got to come up with these numbers. And I remember I would go, like, just find a hype cycle and kind of like, you know, pluck off based on that and my own sort of adjusting that, you know, we're, uh, we're the market window is still open because it's less than two years or like it's way closed or like it hasn't even it hasn't even opened yet or things like that. Right. Well, it's funny is you're like, you know, kind of going through that and I was listening, I was processing because you started off talking about Vanguard and it's. You know, it's interesting to me that there, as far as I know, I mean, is there a index fund approach to corporate M and A? Because you know, like <laughs> what you went through was like almost like you know, like you're. I envisioned you as almost like a a personal financial advisor, right? And they're coming in and they're like giving you all these models and market window and timing and and you're kind of, but you kind of sit in the middle. You're like, well, it's all just kind of a hand wave, right? And so like you know, as a yeah. personal investor, like at least what everyone's doing and as Vanguard's continues to grow, and I do this too. I mean, whether it's right or wrong, I have no idea. But like, you know, you're just like, you know, I don't know this is very complicated but like if i just uh focus in on minimizing fees right and just try to take the industry average you know which is vanguard i'm just gonna and i wait long enough then i'm gonna be good right and it's like and you're just kind of like giving up on all the complicated math and financial models and factor investments and all that stuff and i just you know and i feel like that's what companies are always trying to do they're they're actually the flip side they're always uh, you know, trying to construct these very complicated models that at the end of the day are very loosely based on, you know, kind of like best estimate information. But like, but the flip side of that is like, what are they supposed to do? Like, are they not supposed to buy companies? Is there a way that they could like index? And, you know, I mean, it's like, I guess you could always try to buy the companies that are cheaper, like some value approach, yeah. but that means you'll miss out on a lot of growth. It's just like, um, the best I can tell is like this is why it kind of brings me back to private equity. Private equity seems to be the index fund approach to M and A, right? They're just like, we don't we don't invest in any of this crazy startup stuff. We just need to see ten years of financials in you know in like some fairly predictable financial model, and we'll pay you not as much as you want, but like a premium for it, and then we'll just aggregate that yeah. maintenance stream. But uh, you know, having not worked at a private equity company, one is probably not as easy as I just said, and two, working at like primarily growth companies, um, I don't know, man. I'm I, every time I meet with M and A group, I always leave like, man, I don't know. Either like I'm not smart enough to work for them or yeah, with that yeah. group, or I don't really know that any of those models really matter. You know, well, that's like every meeting ends with me feeling that way. Yeah. Well, well, I'll, I'll, you know, I love to talk about that kind of stuff. But just to close out for vendors, 
I mean, it's pretty obvious. You just like, if, if your dot is in a good place, you're like, please try my product, right? Like for, <laughs> for, for vendors, the hype cycle is hype cycle and magic quadrant. Simple. It's like, does this favorably portray what you're trying to sell? If so, license it and wrap some legion around it. Give it to your, f- your field people and have them use it. Does it portray you unfavorably? Pretend like it does not exist and kill it with fire, right? Like, it's just like, that's it. <laughs> so, so we say, like, uh, use your dragons. In that case, use your dragons. Yeah, so exactly. Game of yeah. Thrones fans. Yeah, there you go. So, uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, uh, sorry, now I'm, I'm thinking about I'm trying to evaluate, once again, if I should watch that TV show. I, anyways, uh, <laughs> you've, you've derailed me. But to add to your M&A thing, right? Like, I think, I mean, and, and then we'll wrap up. Uh, I think... And this is all, I mean, granted, I only have two years of experience working at one place, but whatever. That's never stopped me from saying, pretending like I know what I'm talking about. I mean, I, I, you, you bring up the kind of er problem, the, the original, pro, the prime mover problem with not only M&A, but corporate strategy. And that is, in theory, the board does this, I guess, but, uh, uh, and maybe the executives do this. But someone, and there's no way to scientifically do this, really. Someone has to figure out how you want to make money, right? Like, that's the prime thing you need to figure out. And this is what I call, it's almost like one of those Esquire magazine chart things. The first question is, do you want to do check cashing, (laughs) right? (laughs) Because if you want to do check cashing, you're going to make a shit ton of money, right? It, It may not be, like, awesome. It may not be whatever you want it to be. But guess what? If you collect 1% to 2% of all money that goes through your hands, just wait, <laughs> right? And a variant of check cashing is, do you want to be an insurance company, right? And and I, I guess the, the branch after check cashing is like, do you already have a lot of money? If yes, you should be in insurance. If no, check cashing, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. But right. so you got to decide that. Now, most people, they go down, no, I don't want to do check cashing. And then they need to figure out what they want to do, right? And the narrowing down to the tech industry, it's like, we do this in tech. I mean, like, let, let's use Google because we don't know anything about that from the inside. At some point, uh, you know, they were all like, we're crazy valley people. We should search the internet. Holy crap ads. We better buy double click. So that was actually a good, it was a double click, whoever. That was a good instance of like, we have decided that we at least want to try making money with ads. That's how we want to make money. So we need to acquire that because we can't build it. I mean, that's a textbook case of, acquiring to drive revenue, right? And I'm sure, well, I'm not sure, but they hopefully they did some some estimates of how much money they would make back and things like that. Now, further down the line, someone was like, you know, I think we should make money with robots, <laughs> right? <laughs> right, right. And, and so someone decided, uh, some ones, that like the way that Google was going to make money was with robots, and so they acquired some robot companies, which I think they then divested a few years later. And so that is like, that drives a huge amount. And it's always a good discussion to have with m a people because I've found that they often don't really have an easy answer to that question. Like they'll start to like shimmy around and say things like synergies and adjacent markets and cross sell. And you're like, no, no, no. How is it you want to make money? Right? Like, because if, if basically the way you're doing m a is driven by your constraints, uh, which is to say, I mean, this is a way to make money of like, uh, we have 10,000 salespeople that go talk with everyone each day, and we should also ask them if they want to sell antivirus. So therefore, we should buy McAfee or Kaspergi or whatever. Um, right. So you can do things that way. But I think I think the more growth-focused way is to figure out like, what are what are ways that we would like to make money? 
And then what are things that we have? What are capabilities we have as a company that would make us better at someone else, even the company we're acquiring uh, to do it? And um, I don't know, maybe that's what strategy is. But very few people uh, I found sort of like think at that. They have a good answer at that high level. They more they more are dealing with the box that they're in and thinking about how to. Um, it's like it's like their M and A people go to IKEA and they're like, "I have this little box. How might I make it look better?" <laughs> <laughs> Instead of thinking about what if I had a whole different box in a whole other part of the world. Like what? How how would that work? Yeah. Well, I think that's you know I know we're gonna wrap, but maybe that's sort of like for topic for another time. Is just around like I I kind of categorize that as sort of like sustaining acquisitions. Yeah. yeah. In in new markets, right? Sustaining acquisition is just the double click, right? Where, you know it it you know pretty clearly how it can enhance your current business and where the money's gonna come from. Doesn't usually mean you're gonna grow like fifty fold or a million yep. fold, but like it really helps you. And then. You know, probably right now, I think we maybe give Amazon at least the baton as, you know, growth acquisitions around like you're looking at target addressable market, even if you're not yeah, in it. Yeah. You're just like, oh, man, like this is so big that we got got to find a way to do it. And so they buy a grocery store. Yeah, right? no, know, that, that's exactly so, that, that's that's a good um, example of this. This I don't know what else to say, but this this cooler type of M&A. <laughs> Right. <laughs> is like is like we should go buy Whole Foods, or hopefully the way it started is like we should go buy a large, well-established grocery chain that has right. unique capabilities, and then and then you know I'm sure there's you know you could look at Trader Joe's and Whole Foods, and and they probably also looked at Kroger, and I mean we talked about this several episodes back, but like yeah, um, you know that is a but good you example. Think the thing, of an I think the thing, thing they started with though, I'm sure they started with like, hey, look at the look at how much revenue is spent in groceries every year right that's yeah, where they decided yeah. totally. and they're like and, and we believe we need to get in there and i think you know just to close out the topic it's like in retrospect the boston i think it was boston robotics by google like yeah it looks totally stupid but like as long as they went in with like this is an adjacent market that could be huge but could totally we could totally whiff on it and maybe they even said in the business case and in five years if it doesn't do anything we'll just sell it off and get yeah. a little bit of money back Fine, and maybe Amazon has the same case. So, like, you know, we'll give this whole thing a try. If it doesn't work, we'll sell it off, and you know, yeah, you know, we. And so, I think that's just acknowledging the risk going into it. Versus, like, there was probably very little risk in buying DoubleClick. So, yeah. and hopefully, we can all work at places that are doing that level of strategic thinking. Yeah, yeah, and and I, get, I mean, you highlighted it, but there is another type of M and A in the middle that's basically just like, uh, this is a good asset. We can make money with it. I mean, you know, it, it, it's it's incremental or, or however you want to think about it, sustaining, and uh, it's something that we should buy. It's probably how a lot of uh, consumer packaged good stuff works, right? Like we should go buy Tom's well, Vane. I think we would go back on our own. I know we share some personal history here. Like I think BMC's acquisition oh, yes. of Remedy at the time was yes. I would just call that a value acquisition, where yes. it was like, hey. This is just an undervalued uh, asset that we happen to be able to see earlier than anybody else and happens to be something that we feel really comfortable owning um, like we should do it. Right. Yeah. And I think that went on to and I think that would, you know, you know, you could basically say Warren Buffett has made an enormous yeah. amount of money yeah. doing just that. And I, so. and I think as, as I'm fond of saying, I haven't actually looked at this to see if it's true, but I'm pretty sure. Remedy was probably one of the best tech acquisitions ever because like it was like incredibly distressed at the time and like who owned it? It was HP or Peregrine or what? Somehow it had shifted hands. And yeah, there was, it was, there was shenanigans of, uh, and fire sailing and bankruptcy court out. Right? Yeah, that yeah, was exactly. So unusual, right? Exactly. And that was like, wow, this will never happen again. Yeah. I mean, well, it hasn't happened in a while. So. Yeah, there's a lot of bacon saving going on there. That was good. So, <laughs> uh, anyhow, 
This has been the uh, software-defined talk members-only white paper exegesis podcast. If, if, if you're listening to this, you either are being marketed to by one of our great members who thinks you should sign up for it, or you're one of the members. But if you want to get these podcasts, you go to patreon.com slash SDT, and you can sign up for as little as a dollar a month or more and, uh, and subscribe to it. But everyone probably knows that. It'd be helpful if, if you're interested in this to uh, share it with your friends and kind of send it along to them. We won't have very good detailed show notes on this one uh, because I didn't spend a whole lot of time reading this document. It's very long. As Brandon was saying, this is quite the document. Uh, so, uh, but usually we have long show notes. But uh, yeah, hopefully you've enjoyed this episode. And as always, if you want to see more normal software-defined talk stuff, you can go to softwaredefinedtalk.com and uh, you can subscribe to the podcast there, see past episodes. We've got a Slack channel you come come into. I think, uh, you know, if you want to suggest a white paper to read uh, for us to go over, come in there and you can look at topics ahead of time. And with that, we'll see everyone next time. Bye-bye.